Salt Lab Radio is brought to you by Silver Sea Cruises. With more than a thousand destinations over seven continents, including exclusive culinary adventures on the all-new Silver Moon, Silver Sea travels deeper. Hey, it's Adam. We recorded this episode recently via Zoom as COVID-19 continues to be a global pandemic. As we remain at home, we're thinking of our friends all around the world. And in the spirit of future travels, we're excited to share these stories. I want to tell you a story about a food that's always worth traveling for, a food that's far more than the sum of its parts. Those parts, much of the time, are just flour, water, eggs. Just a few ingredients makes for countless stories, pasta stories, like this one from Chef Missy Robbins about her pursuit of the perfect kazanze, a stuffed pasta from the Dolomites. This one place for the kazanze was basically a kazanze store. And I don't know, she probably made like 10 different kinds of kazanze. And it was one grandma in back and in our very broken Italian, we asked if we could see what she was doing. And we ended up spending like an hour there with her making pasta with us and showing us all her fillings. And when you get the right person, they're so proud and they want to show you what they do. And this woman probably has had this shop for 50 years and has been making the same thing every day for 50 years. You know, I always thought of Cassinze as this one thing of beets, but she had a speck filling and she had like a greens and potatoes filling. And that was a really lovely experience. I think about that that day quite a bit. That was a good one. And there's this from author Christina Gill about her pursuit of Rome's four quintessential pastas. We've had the best gricia at Armando al Pantheon, the best carbonara at the Rex or at Pipero. I think he kept the name of his restaurant. I don't know what it's called now. Roscioli has the best at Matriciana, but they can compete with the carbonara. Da Cesare has the best uh, cacio e pepe. Better than his, uh, I shouldn't say this, but I like it better than I like his carbonara. Even though I appreciate with his carbonara, they always ask their guests whether they would like the guanciale crunchy or soft. From Milan, we talked with author Laura Lazzaroni. She told me about Massimo Mancini, a farmer turned dry pasta perfectionist who makes an incredible product in La Marca. It's a rather romantic, you know, farming story, but then... Once that wheat crosses the the door and gets into the factory, it's like NASA, basically. And we switch from, you know, the romantic farmer with, you know, on his truck with, with a Panama hat to this super obsessive, you know, science driven Massimo, which is the other side of Massimo Mancini. Having been home for almost a year, our fascination with and nearly daily consumption of pasta has grown and grown. Its ability to transport us to the places we miss so much is the motivation for this episode, featuring some of the deepest thinkers in pasta today. Coming up, Missy Robbins reports back from researching her upcoming book, Laura Lazzaroni Dishes on Pasta's New Wave, Christina Gill calls in the eternal wisdom from Rome, and we'll meet Massimo Mancini, who set himself the goal of making the best pasta in Italy. Welcome aboard, get some water boiling, and grab your tongs. This is Salt Lab Radio. I'm Massimo Mancini, I am uh, 52 years old. I started this situation 10 years ago, okay, when I built the pasta factory where you came last year. 
Massimo's being just a little modest here. His situation involves endless golden fields of Durham wheat beneath an equally golden Italian sun. His modernist factory sits up on a hill in the middle of it all, like a glass temple dedicated to pasta-making perfection. He's zooming in from the floor of the pasta factory now. My family has this big farm from a long time. My grandfather, Nonno Mariano, uh, started in uh, 1940. And then my father uh, continued the situation, but uh, both my grandfather before and then my father uh, sold all the products, uh, all the agricultural products to the industrial. Massimo himself spent a couple of years working for Big Pasta, for a brand you see in grocery stores all around the world. This was all part of his plan, to learn as much as possible about the industry before returning home to the hills of La Marca to take a big pasta risk. Massimo would set out to close the pasta-making loop and do everything from developing new strains of wheat to making a dried pasta that can be served in the best restaurants in the world. You know dried pasta. You've eaten it all your life, a boxed yellow commodity. It's Massimo's quest to make it in a way that's elevated, obsessively crafted, less Fiat, more Ferrari. We don't buy the raw material, okay? We, we produce pasta only with our Duno wheat in, in our pasta factory, where we want to combine the high technology with the very, very old method to produce pasta. This is uh, our philosophy. When you started this, did your family, did your neighbors, did your colleagues think you were crazy? Yeah, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, it's important. A little crazy is important. So, Pastificio Agricolo Mancini, or, or Pasta Mancini, as we call it, is a, truly a quite unique case. That's Laura Lazzaroni. She was editor-in-chief of the Italian-language version of Food & Wine magazine and is now the author of the upcoming book, The New Cucina Italiana. She's also the most in-demand baker in Milan through her pop-up bakery, Gluten Freak. Laura is a gluten authority. It's a case study in Italy, pasta production. First of all, one thing not everybody knows is that not all pasta in Italy is made with Italian wheat, as sad as it sounds. It's just a question of math. Like there's not enough wheat to produce, you know, that X amount of pasta tons. You guys uh, eat a lot of pasta. Yeah, we do eat a lot of pasta. And second, even those who produce pasta with Italian wheat not necessarily use their own wheat. So there has been a lot of like not so great um, agricultural <laughs> practice uh, done in the market and all of Italy for that matter for many years until, you know, uh, a few farmers and more and more nowadays started doing it right. And Massimo Mancini, um, the owner, is one of these people. So uh, working with Oriana Porfiri, who is an agronomist, what he does is that he selects uh, new varieties of durum wheat. So already this part of the process would be um, quite unique in itself, right? So the fact that he owns his wheat, selects new varieties for flavor, sustainability, adaptability, and nutritional value. But then what happens when 
he harvests the wheat and and brings it into the factories also pretty spectacular. The lab coat comes on, the glasses. Totally, the lab coat comes on. And over the years, uh, with great expense, you know, truly, he's funded everything himself. Uh, It's a family-run operation. He's been able to put together probably the most advanced equipment for pasta making and also to tweak the process in such detail that nowadays, I would say most pasta makers, uh, the artisanal famous pasta makers in Italy, go to him, call him if they have a problem. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Massimo cultivates five types of wheat, Levante, Maista, Nazareno, Tyrannicum, and Nono Mariano. He thinks like a winemaker. They blend grapes, he blends flour to create an optimal noodle. One variety is not blended. Massimo uses Nono Mariano on its own to make a new single varietal pasta. The strain of wheat and its pasta progeny is named for Massimo's grandfather, Mariano, who started the family farm and passed away in 2013 at the age of 105. Massimo says his grandfather inspired his vision. And uh, I remember my, my father said me, no pasta factory. My grandfather said, Massimo, go, go, pasta factory, good idea. Okay, this is the difference. It seems like, Massimo, you, you've uh, sort of inherited this kind of combination of an emotional attachment to this land, but also using very technical and scientific and creative and forward-thinking ways of changing the product. So we talked to our friend Laura Lazzaroni, and she said that she was joking that when you get inside the factory, it's like NASA. Like it's the romance is outside, but when you come inside, it's very technical, very what you guys are doing, you're not messing around. So describe a little bit about that, about the the technical advances, how you dial in the the drying times or the the types of bronze dyes you use, the importance. Just talk a little bit about what how have you pushed push the science? We, we want to combine the AI technology with very, very old method. And when we produce pasta, we use semolina and water. That's it. There isn't the other raw materials. And we combine uh, semolina and water uh, in a dough, okay, doing a dough. And uh, we push this dough through the bronze dyes, okay? The bronze dyes is very, very important. Normally, the industrial company uses uh, the, the Teflon dyes, okay, plastic dyes, because using the Teflon dyes, they can produce a lot of quantity. But if you use the Teflon dyes, the, the surface of the pasta is very smooth. When you use uh, the bronze dyes in the, in the correct way, you have to go, you have to do very slow, very slow, but uh, if you go slow the surf- and you use the bronze dice, the surface of the pasta is very rough and keep the sauce in the best way. Okay, it's very, very important. The second part of the process is the drying process, okay? And uh, we use the very, very low temperature and we spend a long time to dry pasta. Normally, when you produce a spaghetti, for example, the most difficult shape of pasta to do, uh, we spend 40 hours, okay, 40 hours, so 44 hours for the big spaghettoni, okay, and we use the 
the medium temperature of 45, 44 Celsius degrees, okay? Normally, the industrial company dry pasta using a very high temperature, 80, 90, 100 Celsius degrees, and they spend two, three, four, six hours, 10 hours maximum. On top of the temperature calculations, Massimo carefully monitors the humidity in his pasta drying chambers, tweaking its percentage over the course of the drying process. Different pasta shapes require different settings. It's a science of millimeters. A pasta that's two millimeters in width requires different settings than one that's three millimeters. When I think about how to use dried pasta, I go right to some of my favorite dishes in Rome. Four pastas that really anchor the local cuisine. Amatrechiana, Gricia, Cacciopepe, Carbonara. These are the big four, the pastas found in trattorias all around the city. Since I can't be in Rome, I called up Christina Gill, co-author of the book Tasting Rome, and an all-around excellent source on the foods of the eternal city. So, Christina, you live in Rome. You've lived there since 1999, I think? Yes, October 6th, 1999. I assume that in that time and, and before that uh, living in Rome means taking a position on pasta, that it's sort of uh, uh, the duty of a citizen. I was wondering how your knowledge of these four major pastas of Rome has evolved. What do Gricia, Cacio Pepe, Carbonara, and Amacciana mean to you? So those are the four, uh, I guess you would call it the canons of Roman pasta. And if you ask any Roman what their favorite pasta is, it will be one of those four. And it is really what you would find on the menu of any Roman trattoria. What's the difference between cacio pepe and carbonara? And then what's the difference between gricia and matriciana? Cacio pepe is with cheese and pepper. And you make it kind of with the cheese and pasta water emulsion, and black pepper. And that's it. Carbonara is, has the egg, the cheese, and the guanciale. And so those are the two. And then the gricia, I would say, is kind of contrasting those other three because it's just the cheese and the guanciale. And then the amatriciana is with the guanciale, but it has the tomato base and it can be a little spicy, and it can have onion or no onion. It can have garlic or no garlic. I think that, you know, dry pasta sort of doesn't get the respect it maybe deserves. You know, the, at least, in, you know, if we're talking about how it's referred to in English, you know, the opposite of fresh is, is not dry, it's like rancid. And dry pasta is, is seen as maybe this commodity product and you get it in the supermarket and you eat it, you know, from when you're a baby to your, through your whole life. But it really has this, it, there's a history to it. There, there are dishes that, all the dishes, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but these four dishes of, of you know, the, the, the major pastas of Rome all kind of are best and more, most traditional with dry pasta, right? Sure, because they're also cucina povera. It's a peasant cuisine. So it wouldn't be, I mean, you could do the egg pasta, but you would save the egg pasta. I think, uh, you could do it with a ragu or something like that, but that canon, yes, is generally done with the dry pastas. Are, do you see uh, just eating out and observing um, food and restaurants in in Rome today? Are, are chefs or restaurants 
taking kind of greater care with their choice of dry pasta? With are they featuring it more prominently, or is it still cucina povera and it's a basic ingredient? Well, I, no. I mean, I think that that restaurants, if you're going to a good restaurant, they're going to have a certain level of dried pasta that they serve. Yeah, I I think that it makes a difference when you eat the pasta. You can really tell. You can taste the difference. And I've done this with friends. Just, it's amazing to to taste the difference. And so, if you've got a good restaurant, you you can't serve not good uh, pasta, and you will notice in these kitchens that they are serving. I mean, quite a few of them do serve mancini pasta. How would you describe? Kind of a more industrial commercial pasta juxtaposed against uh, something more sort of handmade and, and artisanally made like like mancini so the higher end pastas are usually rough because they're cut with bronze and so they absorb the sauce more they hold the sauce more uh less quality pasta will become squidgy and soft it'll fall apart um the water will be quite starchy and you know, it'll be cloudy, whereas with a better quality pasta, it won't be. Um, for me, it's all in a bite. And I never thought that I would uh, feel like that about pasta. But really, when I go away, one of the things that I miss is just that bite of really good pasta that holds its shape. And um, you don't get that with the lower end pasta. So I always say, buy as much pasta as you can afford. Massimo explains that getting people to see the value in his product is still an uphill climb. At the beginning, it was very, very difficult, but uh, now I'm happy and I think there are really, really huge opportunity in the world because I think the most important problem for the pasta is not, uh, it's not the competitors, but uh, it's, it's the problem is that the people doesn't know the characteristic of pasta. Eat pasta, but uh, pasta is pasta. It's not, when you speak the, about wine, the people in the world know very well about Sangiovese, Montepulciano, Syrah, uh, Chardonnay. When you speak pasta, pasta is pasta, okay? But I think, and we know together, that when you speak pasta, you, it's incorrect to say, to say Mancini is the best, or Cavalieri, or Benagiano, I don't know how many brands you can find, but it's correct to say that there are huge difference, a lot of difference between pasta and pasta. And the difference is not so expensive, okay? Because if a very old Barolo, I spend maybe $250, okay? But if I buy pasta mancini, I spend $5, okay? $6 for a pack of pasta mancini. It's a, it's not a big problem, I think. Okay, and uh, you can find, you can text the difference, and then you can choose. And thank you for this opportunity to speak pasta. Thank of you course. very much. I, I, as you know, I like to speak pasta all day long. Do you want to meet people like Massimo? Learn about their traditions and their craft? Eat their pasta? I've got a program for you. I want to tell you a little bit about SALT. SALT is an acronym for Sea and Land Taste. That's the name of Silversea's new immersive culinary program. I'm not just the voice of this podcast, I'm also SALT's director. 
Salt is all about connecting guests with the food and drink culture of the places they visit. There's a new restaurant and bar focused on changing regional menus, and there's our first ever Salt Lab, a dedicated space for engaging lectures and hands-on cooking lessons. There's also the all-new customized culinary shore excursions where guests will meet chefs and producers like the ones we talked to on this show. Silver Sea is connecting its guests to the taste and traditions of the world like never before. Salt launches soon on Silver Sea's newest ship, Silver Moon, which was built in Ancona, just down the hill from Massimo's farm and factory. Hope to see you aboard soon. And check out Salt at www.silversea.com slash podcasts. In Brooklyn, where I live, I have a local pasta rabbi who I turn to in times like these. I count on her to bring Italy to me. Her name is Missy Robbins, and she's the chef behind two restaurants here, Lilia and Missy, with a gorgeous pasta drying room of its own, where we caught up with her on Zoom. For a while now, Missy has been working on an epic book all about her life in pasta and the decades of cooking experience and travel that have elevated her craft. The book might make Missy your pasta rabbi, too. Tell me a little bit about the forthcoming book and the kind of pasta journeys that that informed it. It's going to be called Pasta, coming out in fall 2021 now, written by Talia Baiocchi, who, who really drove a significant amount of this project and and is such an incredible writer that I actually tear up often when I read passages that she's written about the book. It's it's stories about about just my view on Italian cooking and pasta and how to cook pasta. It's by no means me saying I'm an expert. It's just sort of, again, about my my journey and how I view the world of pasta and, and, and why I love it and, and, and what I've extracted and what I've learned over the years. So walk us through that, that regionality a little bit. I mean, you know, I've been studying regional Italian cuisine for a really long time now, and I, and I didn't even understand it before that trip to Italy. I had been to Italy a few times before I was 28 when I decided to go cook there. I didn't really understand that there were basically 20 cuisines in, in Italy. And it's fascinating because the pastas really do change from north to south to central to east to west. Um, and I think for me, one of the, the coolest things about, and we, we didn't hit every region, we, we hit a lot of them, but we, we went to ones that we felt were really important. I think Liguria probably had one of the bus- biggest impacts on me because it's northern, but there it feels so light. What were the discoveries there? I, mean, I think I think of you know trophy with pesto or yeah. I mean, trophy with pesto was like uh, mind blowing. So first of all, they make their trophy with chestnut flour, um, which I just did at home the other night for the first time because we were craving it. And the pesto there, I, I just remember tasting the pesto for the first time. And Talia was with me on the trip, obviously, and. She said that some, she's an incredible palate. I mean, an absolute incredible palate where she can eat something and be like, there's X in it. And my, my palate is very different than that. It takes me like a minute. And she said, this tastes smoky. And I'm like, what? I'm like, pesto, there's nothing smoky in pesto. Well, it turns out that very traditionally in Liguria, they, they put Fiori Sardo cheese in, which is a smoked pecorino. And it's changed my life. It was really mind blowing. And then just seeing Corzetti in its place. Like, I think that's the thing. These pastas all have their place. Corzetti just is a stamped pasta, right? It's a 
different shapes, typically round or? Yeah, it's a little coin. And we, we've had them on the menus at, at both the restaurants for a really long time, always. Like, it's just been one of my, my go-tos. And I'm sort of, I'm really fascinated by the by the sort of antiquity of using these tools also. So like, I know you want to talk about the North, but Sardinia's pasta culture, um, I had never been, I'd never spent a lot of time in, in the South or in Sardinia or Sicily. I think I think both of those places for me were, were really special. What's the f- uh, kind of specific flavor profiles there? Is it sweet sour? Is it, what, what do you get in Sardinia that you don't get in the North? First of all, it's such, partially about about some shapes um okay. so they have the curligones which i'm sure you've seen are the ones that are like a torpedo shape filled pasta it's like ridged sort of you take a circle of pasta dough in your hand you put the filling in you kind of hold it like a a, a moon like a, a taco i guess yeah and you kind of indent it and it has these indentations that go all the way around that look like this beautiful pattern um and they're filled traditionally with um pecorino potato and mint um and then and then served over just like a really light tomato sauce of course i wanted to get missy's take on dried pastas too you know one of the things we've been talking about is that the in english dry pasta has a little bit of a an uphill battle because obviously with the supermarket item it's 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 not as uh maybe as sexy as as you know, freshly made pasta, but maybe talk a little bit about the the dry pastas you've been taken with, or or how you see the place of dried pasta in Italian. I cuisine. think it's equally as important, and I think it's equally an art form. And so, I think I think one of the reasons why I've kind of come up with my own way of drying pasta, you know, the pasta we do out of the extruder at Missy and Lilia isn't dried in a in a dryer you know in if you go to any of these places even the artisan places they're they're drying in commercial dryers set at specific temperatures i'm air drying my pasta like they did in the piazzas in you know the 1800s um and and it's obviously less less of a science and you have to really watch it but like the sort of what i've come up with is this method of taking it sort of 80 to 90% of the way, not 100%. So that like, you have this texture of dried pasta, but you kind of know it was crafted at home sort of in the restaurant. But dried pasta, like I want to eat dried pasta all the time. Like I want to open a box of spaghetti and make spaghetti with garlic. Like, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. They're different, they're different animals. And they take to sauces differently. They work differently. They speak to different regions, you know, in, in the North was traditionally more wealthy than the South. And so they used eggs because they had them and in the South they didn't. So do you call what you do like a dry pasta or is it kind of a hybrid? We call it dried pasta, but it's not, it is perishable. It is not shelf stable. So is the, is the question whether I would do a shelf stable, real dried pasta? Yes. You would. Okay. I would. I'm just not there yet. Like I don't have the tools to do it and I don't, I don't. I, I haven't experimented with it enough to do it, but yeah, I would, I would definitely do it. Like I said, I love dried pasta and it's not just super artisan. Like if, if someone on one of you wants to ask me what my favorite dried pasta is, I'd happily tell you. And it's a very big company. Do you want to know? Missy, what's your favorite dried pasta? <laughs> I'll give you two. If your uh, Rusticella is 
is one of them. And that's obviously like sort of medium sized artisan. And then I am a big fan of DiCecco and I'm not ashamed of it. And I, and I think sponsored. it is not sponsored. There's zero sponsorship. I eat it at home. I think there is a consistency to it. Like a, like, you know, if you open a box of DiCecco, it's always going to be the same and it has good bite. We did a taste test of five or six dried pastas for the book um, so that we could recommend. And I was so nervous because I'm like, what if I picked that? We did it blind. And I was like, what if I picked a really shitty one? Like, and I knew, like I knew that we had a couple of not amazing brands. And I was like, oh my God, what if I like, I don't, I don't pick the right, the right one. And I was like, so nervous. And I kind of picked in the, in the order. I picked my, my own first. <laughs> I, I, picked, I picked Lilia spaghetti and then, and then Rusticella and then, and then Dicheco were the top three. While pasta traditions are enough to occupy our imaginations, Laura Lazzaroni's upcoming book, The New Cucina Italiana, offers a glimpse at the idea that even pasta can act as a canvas for fresh ideas. You know, who are some names to know in Italy right now? Uh, yeah. of chefs doing interesting things with pasta specifically. Yes. So <clears throat> the premise of the book was, uh, it was just the, the, the culmination of years and years of conversations and reading articles about, you know, Italian food, Italian cuisine, and having friends uh, who even write professionally about food. And the observation that I personally made that there seemed to exist a sort of like a binary idea of Italian cuisine, where it's either super traditional comforting dishes, you know, are, are staples, uh, such as, I don't know, cacio e pepe, amatriciana, tortellini in brodo, this kind of stuff, or massimo bottura. And there's nothing wrong with either of these, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. Massimo is phenomenal, and amatriciana is like, should get the Nobel <laughs> every year, every right, year. Yeah. basically the reality of it is that there is a whole world in between um, Massimo Bottura and a dish of uh, Amatriciana so I wanted to tell the story of this world because it belongs to uh, truly an extraordinary league of young chefs of women and men who are t- really setting out to rewrite some of the rules of this game and I don't want people to be scared. This does not mean deconstructed veal Milanese. It's not that kind of rewriting that we're talking about. So I set out to to visit 34 of these chefs from north to south, from Piedmont to Apulia, and tell their stories and share their recipes with the world. Hopefully there's about 50 recipes in the book, many of which are pasta related. And there's a lot of examples in the book, starting with the, the cover dish, which is a dish by Nico Romito, who is a three Michelin star chef. And the dish is assoluto di cipolle parmigiano e zafferano tostato. In English, it's absolute onion with parmesan-filled pasta buttons and toasted saffrons. And so what it is, is fresh pasta buttons that are um, filled with Parmesan cheese and are served in something that looks like a broth, but is not a broth actually. And it's pure onion extraction. So it, it's beautiful. It's truly, this marked a new era of fresh filled pasta in Italy, truly. So Nico is one of the dishes and then there's others. Uh, staying in Abruzzo, there's Gianni Dezio, 
who in the book has a very interesting take on fresh pasta done the central Italy way, which is just flour, water, and salt. And he makes these tagliolini, which play uh, very subtly with the different shades of white. And he serves them with the guanciale, super thinly sliced, and cuttlefish, super thinly sliced with the rosemary extraction. And, and this is also a super interesting example, as is... Uh, you know, if we move uh, north, we first stop at Gianluca Gorini, at the Gorini in Emilia-Romagna. He has a very interesting take on passatelli. Passatelli is another typical uh, pasta that was, as many dishes are born out of necessity and extreme poverty when there wasn't enough money to have, you know, to buy enough flour to make fresh pasta. And so they would add breadcrumbs. So breadcrumbs, which interestingly are bread, obviously, uh, but have are added and have been historically added to so many pasta dishes. Uh, in the case of passatelli, they're added into the, the pasta dough and other pasta dishes in the South, especially in Sicily, they're toasted and then used to, to top the, the pasta. But so passatelli, again, made with a uh, little bit of flour, egg, uh, parmesan cheese, uh, breadcrumbs, uh, and then extruded uh, manually, which is pretty labor-intensive process, uh, used to be served in a broth. Um, and Gianluca Gorini's take on this is super interesting because he makes this broth uh, out of basically all the scraps of winter vegetables that his kitchen would otherwise toss therefore reducing food waste, uh, which is one of the concerns of these chefs, uh, uh, and by using, for instance, the hard, uh, most external leaves of savoy cabbage and other vegetable scraps, uh, he really makes this super concentrated, hearty, briny, almost soy sauce-like broth that it's so delicious and layered and um, is truly the best vessel for the passatelli. Massimo Mancini sees dried pasta as part of this next wave, too. Ten years ago, it was impossible to eat pasta in a Michelin-style restaurant because uh, you, can, you, you could find only the fresh pasta from the chef, okay? But it was impossible to find the dry, good pasta in the Michelin-style restaurant. Now, if you were in a... Enrico Crippa, Piazza Duomo, Nadia Santini, Pescadore, or Bobo Cerea, Pinchiorri, or Nico Romito, Michelin Stars, Chef, you always, you can eat and you can find the menu dry pasta, Mancini or the other brand. For all the big, bold ideas about pasta, for all the journeys and techniques, simplicity can still speak the loudest. Here's Laura on the notion and the value of stripping all the distractions away. She's talking about Massimo. When he conducts tastings of his own pasta, you might know this, uh, the, the first bite that you take is just pasta with no condiment at all, because it's so good and you can totally taste the wheat in it. It's phenomenal. And then the next step is just pasta with a little bit of olive oil, which is a true way you know, of knowing it's the same as when you say to judge a good chef in Italy, at least, you ask him to cook spaghetti with pomodoro because it's like right. in simplicity, all the, you know, mistakes. You see all the flaws. They, yeah. they can't hide. Right. It's the same thing with pasta. If it's really good pasta, you have to be able to eat it with just a little bit of olive oil. That was Laura Lazzaroni, 
You can follow her on Instagram at Laura Lazzaroni underscore. Look out for her new book coming soon from Rizzoli in March. To learn about Pasta Mancini, go to www.pastamancini.com. To stay up to date on Christina Gill's upcoming projects, follow her on Instagram at Christina Gill Food. And follow Missy Robbins on Instagram at Missy A. Robbins. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time with more Salt Lab adventures. Salt Lab Radio is produced for Silver Sea Cruises by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and Howie Kahn at Freetime Media. Music by John Palmer. Special thanks to Lorenzo Satimi, Tom Camuso, Barbara Muckerman, Barbara Beefy, Elena Mariando, Sheila Donnelly, and Evan Block. And I'm your host, Adam Sachs. Salt Lab Radio is brought to you by Silver Sea Cruises. With more than a thousand destinations over seven continents, including exclusive culinary adventures on the all-new Silver Moon, Silver Sea travels deeper.